0: Good morning. Welcome to our uh, online worship this week for Church of the Apostles. And so we're going to be in uh Romans chapter 3 again as we continue our series through the book of Romans. But before we do um, before we jump in, let me pray for us and then we'll get, we'll jump into the text together. But Lord, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to worship your name. We thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Uh, we thank you that uh in this season and just as we face different challenges that we can continue to meet, uh, whether it's in person or or these ways digitally, that we can spend time in your word together. And we thank you that your word is powerful and it is true and that it is life-giving. And that whether it's spending time in this way digitally or in person, that you are the same and that you are in sovereignly in control of all things. And we pray that you would be the one that leads and guides and teaches us uh, this morning. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, you know, I was thinking this week uh, that in a lot of ways uh, today in our culture, we are more connected than we've ever been before in a whole lot of ways. Uh, maybe not literally right now in the sense of with social distancing and all the things that we've gone through this year. But in terms of being able to interact with people around the world, uh, hear different opinions, uh, get to know different people from different cultures, different things like that because of, uh, digital media, online, uh, social media, uh, FaceTime, video conferencing, Zoom, all those kind of things. We have more access to people and opinions and, and one another around the world. And in some ways, that's really, really great. In some ways, it's wonderful. Um it's shrunk the world in a whole lot of ways. I was thinking about just, uh, being in Africa. Earlier this year and being able to keep up with the people that are there and see what's happening there and and knowing that, uh, just being able to see those different cultures, uh, the fact that we can get to those places relatively easy. And so it's also wonderful in the sense of we can keep up with friends and family and just there's a lot of good things. But also with it comes a lot of negative impacts. You know, I was, I was rereading uh, part of a book this week where the author makes the point that with such connection... Over the, the whole world, it, it's changed the dynamic of the way people experience uh, just the world itself in very profound ways. And, and one such way is that in the past, we used to live in smaller groups and whether neighborhoods or uh, a smaller town or whatever it is. And everyone kind of had their, uh, th- their different gifting in the way they fit in, right? Different people did different things. And had uh, known in their community as being helpful and in and, uh, being gifted in a certain way, and, and to an extent, that's that's still the case. And not to negate that, but what has happened, and this is what the author was pointing out, is is we used to get this this big boost of of self importance by being gifted in certain ways, the way God's gifted us, and the way that we give back to our community and around us. But now that we're connected with the entirety of the world. Uh, even if we live in a small community, we're made aware of people that are gifted very similarly than us to, to the gifts that we have. But in such ways that oftentimes that maybe uh, they're way better than we are and now we're aware of it and we see those things all around us. And so this connection with the world like never before, you suddenly can see people to do what you do, but do it even better. And so it can be a difficult thing for us to deal with. And so how do we deal with that? Well, there's different ways that we do. One of those is what psychologists call uh, positive illusions. And it's prevalent. And, and some would even advocate for this and say that it's a good thing. But basically what it is, is you tell yourself uh, small lies, little lies to help you deal with the harshness of the world around you, to deal with how you have self-importance and and give your ego a boost and so you tell yourself things where maybe you exaggerate your own abilities and you exaggerate uh, what you can do and and how you fit in and what you bring and so what it ends up being is kind of being overly optimistic about what's happening in your life and and what you really do is you're, you're letting those small lies protect you and so some psychologists would say that's a good thing and as long as it doesn't get way out of proportion, and we keep them fairly close to the truth, and they're just kind of pushing us ahead a little bit, they can be a good thing. And so they call them positive illusions. But in the book I was reading, the author was saying, "No, no, don't do that." He's presenting a different way. He said, "Don't, don't uh, embrace lies. You want to always speak the truth and tell the truth, and so don't do that." But then his idea was this: he says to compare yourself. Uh, to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. And so the idea is how do you deal with the things in the world and where you see you're struggling or maybe you're struggling to stack up to others. And so what you do is you compare yourself to yourself. And each day you look to move forward and you you get up and you start afresh and you take control of the things that are right in front of you and you work towards small improvement each day. And so his rule emerges, don't judge yourself comparing yourself. Uh, to someone else, but judge yourself to who you were yesterday, and so continue to make small improvements. And I read that and thought, uh, okay, maybe there is some wisdom to that. I would say there is even some biblical wisdom in that, in the sense of of Jesus often tells us uh, to uh, to see uh, personal responsibility and and to uh, we see scripturally not to be. Uh, judging ourselves against others uh, to walk by the spirit is not to be judging yourself against other people but to to be coming to god and your relationship with jesus but but also there's there's the the teaching of jesus that would say before you take the speck out of your brother's eye take the plank out of your own eye uh, i'm thinking when when they come to him in in luke chapter 14 and they ask him who was the worst sinner here The ones that died over there, that died over there. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Before you start doing any of that, you repent or you likewise will perish. And so there is some biblical truth in what this author was saying. But here's the problem. Whether we take positive illusions and we tell little lies to ourselves, or we do this, uh, I'm going to measure myself against myself and make small improvements day over day. Underneath all of this is the glaring, obvious fact that we're continually comparing ourselves, knowing that we don't measure up. If you work really hard to move the goalposts, so to speak, to make things more manageable and find ways to improve, it doesn't change the underlying fact that you don't measure up and that you're aware of it, that everything's not perfect, that you don't have it all perfectly together. Or as it says, in Romans, as we've been working our way through, that no one is righteous. No one will stand before God and cling to their positive illusions. Those things will all be brought to light. There will be no uh, subtle lies. There will be no shading the truth. It'll be known and clear. No one will stand before God and, and look at the improvements I've made day over day. And I was a little better than the day before. And over time, I, I made gradual improvements. Because the reason is no one is righteous. And so what does that mean, righteous or righteousness? It's a word we say a lot in the church. If you've been working through Romans with us, Paul says it a whole lot in the book of Romans. He says it a lot in the scriptures overall, but it's a big idea and it's an important one. And so we say that within the church, things like righteous and righteousness. But here's the question. Have you ever really stopped to consider what it means and why it's so central and important of an idea to the Bible? I want you to think about it for just a moment. Could you explain to someone else right now why the idea of righteousness is so very important? By the way, this is a great tool for growing in your discipleship. How well can you articulate to someone else the things that are of the most importance in scripture? How would you explain it? And maybe right now you're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure how I would explain it. And so take a uh, a moment and make a list of some of those big picture things in scripture and how would i explain it and go to work at clarifying your thinking you cannot hold anything with great conviction that which is vague in your mind if you don't know how you, why you believe what you believe then you're not going to have it with any great conviction and you're certainly not going to be able to make it clear to others and so the importance of our discipleship, of making disciples who make disciples, growing in our understanding of who God is and obedience to Jesus in every area of our life, it's important that we clarify our thinking. And so righteousness, this idea of, of being righteous, and, and as he says here, no one is righteous. And so righteousness is, in scripture is this idea of the state uh, of a person as they ought to be as they were created to be, a condition that is acceptable to God, a a purity of life, a rightness, a correctness. Uh, I read one of the the definitions as you you do word study on it and you look at it through the scriptures. It's simply a correctness of thinking, of feeling, and of acting. And I want you just to think about that for a moment. Correctness of thinking, of feeling, and acting how often would you say you hit that mark? How often do you feel like you're correct in all your thinking and all your feeling and all your acting? I know that's a pretty broad way to think about it, uh, especially on any given subject or any part of your day, and you start to think about how is my uh, my thinking and my feeling and my acting, and are they in alignment with the way God has created us to be and what he has told us? But put it uh, in more concrete terms. Take it down to uh, a specific... Uh, thing or a specific situation like right now we're in the middle of coronavirus pandemic and we've seen all these things and there's all this flood of information and so it's hard to understand exactly how to get a handle on how we should react and act to all that is around us and there's so many varied things in all this that we need to take into account you know, public health and how to care for the most vulnerable and how to protect, uh, healthcare workers, but at the same time, how to protect our economy and people who need to work and how much is political and how do we safeguard personal liberties and how do we move forward and all of that. And there's so much information and things to take in. And so I'll just ask the question, would anyone have the hubris to stand up and say, I know exactly how to think and feel and act in light of all this information? Am I correct in my thinking, in my feeling, in my acting? And if you start to go, yeah, well, I understand it, and I've figured it out, then I want to just ask the question, are you correct in your thinking, in your feeling, in your acting towards people who see it differently than you do? Would anyone say that? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd say, no, of course not. Not without... Uh, Uh, an unhealthy dose of positive illusions would we ever say i am perfect am i thinking am i feeling am i acting when it comes to this issue Or, or, or a whole host of things and the truth is if we really are honest we know that no one is righteous no not one yet we fall into those positive illusions we tell ourselves those little lies to deal with it and so we come up with philosophies to help with us deal with the day, measure yourself against yourself and and not other people. And we continue to seek to improve and get better. But the problem in all of that is we never fully arrive, not in and of ourselves. It's always a work of progress. And if we're honest, a work that is nowhere near the fullness of that bar of righteousness. No one near a correctness of thinking and feeling and acting perfectly in every way at all times. And so the truth is, We all struggle with this. And that's what God has been showing us in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3 and verse 20 that we've been looking at. He's been building that case as he inspires Paul to write this letter. And it came to this dramatic conclusion of this section that we looked at last week in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one can be righteous before God by what they do. Because no one is perfect. No one is perfect in their thinking and their feeling and their acting. No one. But here's where I want us to go today. In that darkness is where the light shines the brightest. And so in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifested means to be made actual and visible, fully realized in word and in deed. Not because of rules that God has given or us following those things that we can make this actual or visible. In fact, he says that it's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. It didn't come through our doing in response to what God has told us, but it says it's been manifested. It's been made actual It's been made visible in word and deed. And then verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what God says here is the greatest balm to your soul. It's the solution and answer to all the things that we struggle with. The righteousness of God has not just been made, been manifested. It has been made widely available. For all who believe by faith in Jesus, the thing that every single one of us is chasing and trying to deal with and wrestling with is now available to all. And so in verse 23, he says, no, none of us deserves it for we've not lived up to God's righteousness for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then in verse 24, he says, it's now by grace through a gift and the redemption of what Jesus has done. And he gives us this righteousness as a gift. As God says that we are now righteous. Now, here's the thing I want us to really consider today. How is that possible? How can someone who is unrighteous now be righteous? How, if you've already blown it in your thinking, in your feeling, in your acting over and over daily, how does that retroact? How does he deal with that? How can God say something that is unrighteous is now righteous? And then as we consider the answer to that, I want us to think about how that answer of what is presented here, the glory of the gospel, answers our struggle, the things we struggle with and knowing that we're not righteous. How does it come to bear on our daily struggle and the things that we look at? So let's consider first, how is that even possible? Paul's going to unfold it in verse 24 and 25 and 26. It goes to the very heart of the gospel. The center uh, of the bullseye when we talk about being gospel-centered is right here. And so verse 24, you're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified by a grace as a gift. And so just start there. Justified is a word that means to declare or pronounce one to be just to be righteous to be just as you ought to be right it's it's very similarly related to that word righteousness and it's saying that you are now righteous you are declared righteous the thing that you are chasing and wanting and dealing and so aware that you are it lacking of in your life is now yours as a gift by grace now, grace just means unmerited favor giving us that which we don't deserve that is something that We cannot earn, but it is given to us. And so how can God bestow this on us? How can he declare us justified when we haven't done it? How can that be just? If God is just and he is righteous and he is perfect in all his thinking, feeling and acting in every way. How can God who is perfect justice say someone who is unrighteous is now righteous? How can he say that any of us is perfectly correct in our thinking and our feeling and our acting, having a purity of life when we're not? How can God look at me and say that I am righteous? How is that possible? Isn't God saying something that's not true? And if that was the case, God would not be God because he's no longer perfect in every way. And so what is the answer? Well, the answer is here. And he tells us and he explains to us why that is the case. And so in verse 24, he says, you've been redeemed, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You have been redeemed, which means to be set free, set free by a ransom being paid. Your debt has now been paid. But then in verse 25, it says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. And so he starts to unfold what this means, that we are uh, uh our debt is paid, we are redeemed by Jesus by what he has done by putting him forth by the propitiation by his blood. And so a lot of big ideas here in Romans 3. A whole lot of big biblical rich words that we need to understand what they're saying to understand the importance of the fullness and the beauty of the gospel here. And so we say, well, propitiation, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means turning away or pacifying someone's wrath, their righteous anger. And so remember, go back in Romans. We said there's a section where Paul is saying that we are all sinners and we all deserve God's wrath beginning halfway through chapter 1 to halfway to the verse 20 of chapter 3. And so if we go all the way back to chapter one and verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from the heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we talked about this several times over the last couple of weeks. Paul is saying over and over again in his argument here that we are all sinful, that we all don't measure up. And as such, God's wrath rests on us, his holy, righteous anger. He is right to judge us. His, He is right to have his wrath rest on us because we have ignored him in his world. We have rebelled against him. And because of God's perfect character, it demands this justice. And so we've talked about this. We don't measure up. We deserve his judgment. But now here it says Jesus has been put forth in the way in which God's wrath is pacified. It's turned away from us, and it's by Jesus' blood. And so what Scripture tells us is that Jesus bears the wrath of God for us. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He takes what we deserve. And in doing so, in the second half of verse 25, it says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That is, God's character demands our sin, is dealt with. And so the only way that God can declare us as righteous when we are not righteous is to deal with our sin for us. And so God has made a way for our sin to be dealt with, for him to be just and to make us righteous without destroying us under the wrath that we deserve. And so on the cross, Jesus, who is perfectly righteous in every way, he has been in perfect harmony with God in every single way. He lives his life completely in purity and rightness and correctness and the fullness of perfection in his thinking and his feeling and his acting. And as such, he deserves all the blessings that go with it. Not deserving death, not deserving judgment, not deserving wrath. Yet Jesus comes and he chooses to lay down his life. And in doing so to take on the sin of all the world that would put their faith in him to make available the righteousness of God to all who believe. This is the very heart of the gospel. We've been saying this every week. The gospel is good news about what God has done for us, not good advice of what we do to try to earn our way to God. It's what God has done for us. And so when Jesus does this, and he takes on the sin of all those who put their faith in him, he goes to the cross. Uh, Paul will say in Corinthians, that God allows him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He lays the sin of all those that put their faith in him on Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross to bear the wrath of God. And God in his holiness pours out his infinite fullness of his righteous anger against sin as Jesus takes it on himself, completely satisfying his wrath. So that we could be made righteous. He redeems us. He pays our debt. That's why it says we can be saved here through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by grace is a gift. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves because we've never measured up, but Jesus takes it for us. And in doing so, it satisfies God's wrath. And God is completely just and he won't demand payment again for something that's already been paid for. So when Jesus pays for our sins, it is done and it is finished and it is gone and it is removed. As far as the east is from the west and you are now made righteous in his sight. He takes your sin. He pays for it. He bears your wrath and he makes us righteous. Now, here's the thing, though. I hear this so often, probably one of the, I would say one of the biggest misunderstandings or, or at least forgotten pieces a lot of times within the church. Jesus deals with our sin, but there's, there's the other side of that coin that go together and they go explicitly together to understand the fullness of what God has done for you. He not only deals with our sins. See, oftentimes when I ask people, Are you a Christian or what do you believe or what do you believe about Jesus? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a a believer and I I believe Jesus died for my sins. And that is true. And that's right as he goes to the cross to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. But so often we miss the part that not only has Jesus died for our sins and assuaged God's wrath and, and turned it away from us. But we are now righteous that Jesus has finished work, his perfect life. His perfect righteousness, his perfectness and his thinking and his feeling and his acting of every moment of his entire being is now credited to us. You are now righteous in every way by grace as a gift in what Jesus did. You are now declared righteous because Jesus gives you his perfect life. You know, we sing a song often here at Coda, Rock of Ages. And there's a line in it, when rightly understood is so glorious, it is overwhelming. It talks about, be of sin, the double cure, saved from wrath and make me pure. And it talks about what Jesus has done for us. Not only has he saved us from the wrath that we deserve, the judgment we deserve because of our sin, that we know we deserve because we know we do not measure up. But then it says he makes us pure. He gives us Jesus's righteousness. It's the double cure. Not only does he die and take our sin, he doesn't just bear the wrath we deserve, but then he gives us the fruit of his perfect righteousness and applies it to us that we are now righteous. And if we miss that, if we miss the double cure, if we only get the first half and we don't get the second half of Christ's finished work, we will be anxious and even despairing when we sin, or when we fall? Because what we're functionally doing is thinking that Jesus came and he died for my sin and he wiped my slate clean and now it's up to me. It's up for me to do the rest. And when we're operating that way, we will. it can quickly lead us to despair when we sin. But now, God's opinion and acceptance of us is not based on a record, it's based on Jesus and what he has done. And when we fall into the air only seeing half of it, we miss that and it leads us to struggle. It leads us to positive illusions and measuring ourselves against ourselves and trying to do it and, and seeking these things that we'll never find rest in. But the astonishing truth of the gospel, the bottom line, is that God now treats us. And if you don't hear anything else that I say today, that God treats us in Jesus as if you have done everything Jesus has done. Let that sink in. God treats us as if we've done everything that Jesus has done, everything you are striving for, whether you fail, you fall into em- embracing uh, positive illusions or measuring yourself against yourself, all these ways we strive, Jesus has already done it and he says, I give it to you. You are now righteous, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. You are now declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No one is righteous in and of him him or herself, but in Jesus, you are righteous. God loves you and sees you and accepts you. He now sees you as if you've done everything that Jesus has done. And God says, you are righteous. There's this remarkable thing that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. You know, John chapter 17 is Jesus in the upper room on the night before he would die with his disciples. And he's praying for them, but he's also praying for us because he talks about praying for those that would come to faith, that would come to know you. And so the disciples who will make disciples and all disciples of all time that come down through the line as the gospel goes out, Jesus is praying for us. And he says this, In John chapter 17, he says this incredible thing, verse 23. Let the world know that you sent me. So he's praying to God the Father. Let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says that God loves us even as he loves Jesus. Because what Jesus does for us, he then applies to us. We've been saved through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and he's given us his righteousness by grace as a gift and you now are seen by God in the way he sees Jesus as if you've done all the things that Jesus has done it is the greatest act of grace and mercy it is the most beautiful gift that's ever been given you are now righteous in Jesus and it's all because of what he's done And so I want to end here just real briefly with what difference practically that makes in your life today and why it's so important. God exalts over you and he loves you and he accepts you fully and completely. And it's not based on your works, but it's based on what Jesus has done. And so when we see that, we can be honest with ourselves. We can be honest before God. We don't have to buy into positive illusions where we tell little lies to try to be better to try to pretend like we're better than we are, or we're somehow earning this or doing this. No, you will never be righteous in and of yourself, but in Jesus you have it completely and fully. And you don't have to play games of embracing lies. You don't have to play games of incrementally trying to better yourself, hoping that one day you'll have done enough. No, you can admit the areas where you struggle, and you confess and find full forgiveness in what Christ has done for you and when you do the truth of god's grace does the job of changing you it is by grace through faith that we are saved and we have this in in jesus because of god's righteousness for us but in his doing you are now a new creation and as that comes to work in your life and it begins to change you from one degree of glory to another you are not only saved by grace but you are sanctified by grace the more we understand the reality of who we are in Jesus, it is the power for salvation. It is the power to change us. He is faithful to, to, to bring to completion what he has started in you. And so we've been saying each week the banner statement over this book. And it's kind of the banner statement over the Bible. It's that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And I want you to consider that, that this grace changes us from one degree of glory to another. And so we'll end here. When you do this and when we embrace this, the truth is everything that you're looking for, everything that you're striving for is yours in Jesus. It's here and only here that you can find true rest. It's here and only here that we can uh, lay down our seeking to make ourselves righteous, our comparisons and our struggles, and we can find rest in what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray that today the glorious good news of the gospel hits you afresh and that you are overwhelmed with God's goodness and grace in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that we are justified. By grace, through faith in what Jesus has done for us, and nothing else, we thank you, that you look on us as righteous, that you look on us fully accepting and loving because of what Jesus has done. Help us to see that afresh today, because it is in that, that we are changed. We thank you, that you love us so much, that you have gone to such great lengths to redeem us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.